0: What if you've ever served on a jury. I was living in Niagara Falls when I got the summons. Brought me in, mobs of people, questions, answers, and I got the selection. It was not a great, very positive experience for me because it seemed that instead of listening to evidence and law, people determined that they would determine the outcome of a suit based on how they felt about something how you feel changes my friends but what is true lasts forever make good choices and today i'm going to ask you to do just that you see in the in the gospel of mark mark is going to present seven witnesses for us here this morning mark chapter 1 seven witnesses And every one of these will give witness to the identity of the Christ of Christmas. Who is Jesus? Is it just some happy story from long ago? And we tell our children and they go, oh, I want to see the baby Jesus. Or is it more than that? Because if it is, my friends, it ought to change the way we celebrate. You see, in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 15, I'll tell you, if you read through the law that God gave this nation, the nation of Israel, you'll see it seems to cover everything. Just about any possible question that could come up. For example, some guy says, walks up and says, Hey, that lady stole something. She should have her hands cut off. Well, the, the law doesn't say that. <laughs> You know, but so, so somebody comes up with some accusation. What do you do about it? In Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 15, we read, A single witness shall not suffice against a person or any crime or for any wrongdoing in connection with any offense that he has committed. Listen carefully. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. Is it enough simply to say the Word of God says that Jesus is indeed the Son of God? Yeah, it is. But you know what? We've got a lot more testimony than that. And so this morning I would like you to listen in carefully to what Mark lays out for us as evidence as to the true identity of, the of, of Jesus of Bethlehem. The first testimony that I shall bring out for you today in Mark is in verse 1. Easy to find, my friend. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. And Mark begins his, uh, his gospel with this very straightforward statement. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so right here from the beginning, Mark makes it abundantly clear that the account that I am to give is not just a man who lived. And believe me, he is indeed a man. But he is indeed God. Let's unpack some of these words. For example, the word Jesus. You remember, Joseph and Mary didn't pick this name because of some rich uncle and hoping for an inheritance. This name was given to Jesus uh, given to Joseph and Mary. You shall call him Jesus. Why? For He shall save His people from their sin. And why the name Jesus? Well, because the name uh, is, is a Greek form of the Hebrew Joshua. You never really think of Jesus' name as Joshua, but in the Hebrew it is. And you know what the name Joshua means? The Lord's salvation. For he shall save his people from their sin. And so here we have the name Jesus. And then comes the word Christ. That wasn't his middle name. You know, it wasn't a nickname. It, it, it is the, the Greek term for Messiah. The Messiah, the anointed one. To be anointed means to be chosen. David was anointed king over Israel. Chosen, the chosen one. The one whom God spoke so much of through the prophets throughout the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of, oh, so many prophecies. Three hundred of them fulfilled by Jesus. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the one whom God would send. We can't possibly famine how exciting this moment, how, how, how monumental this event was in history. For the nation of Israel, you know the account You know the history of Israel, the birth, all the way back from Abraham. You know their constant struggle with sin and their idolatry, and and prophet after prophet came to them to, uh, to bring them back to God, to tell them of the future, to give them hope. And then boom, it happened. I suppose it's a lot like us waiting for the return of Christ. I mean, we know he's coming, but probably not today, right? And so day by day, we don't anticipate. Well, it's probably later. And we have good reason to think that, right? I mean, it's been like 2,000 years, right? (laughs) So so another day isn't going to really make a difference. Yeah. Jesus told us to look at the signs, not the calendar. And so we wait. But Mark lays it out here. Now, in case, of course, you've missed it, you will notice that he not only says Jesus Christ, he says the Son of God. Now, what in the world does that mean? You see, the the term son of indicates one who is like or who is. You may recall that uh, James and John wanted to call out thunder and lightning to rain on these unbelievers and Jesus gave them a nickname sons of thunder and it talked about their character and what they were like but this is more than that to say the son of God means to say that Mark is claiming that Jesus is indeed God. Well, this isn't new news to you, is it? But it is essential that we understand that's exactly what Mark is saying, that Jesus wasn't just some exceptional man. He's the God-man, the very Son of God. In our studies, we know Jesus to be the one who created all that is. We often don't think about such things. But there is nothing in existence that Jesus didn't make. And so the testimony of Mark's gospel, testimony number one, Jesus indeed is the Son of God. But it's not just Mark saying that, you know. We have the testimony of the prophets. Here in verses 2-3 to we read that as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, and make his path straight. Isaiah prophesied about the Messiah's forerunner, that apparently someone would come before him, Elijah, they said. And people wondered about it. Well, what do you mean, Elijah? Is he going to be reincarnated or some crazy thing? Reincarnation, silliness. Yeah. it's going to be raised from the dead? No. You see, the one would come in the way that Elijah ministered. He was a rough dude. Elijah, man, that dude was out in the fields. Man, you come give that guy a hug, you smelled everywhere he's been. Okay? And you know who that reminds me of? John the Baptist. And that's exactly what he's talking about here. But Isaiah, is uh, if you look up this quote, if you try and find this verse that we just quoted, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. If you try and find that in the Old Testament, you won't. You know why? Because Mark took two prophecies and put them together both talking about Jesus composites quotations from the Old Testament they're from Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1 and Isaiah 40 and 3 you can look them up if you want or I can just read them for you in Malachi 3, one, behold I send my messenger that sounds familiar but note carefully here friends and he will prepare the way before me This messenger is going to come and prepare the way for who? The Lord. God. See who's talking about? The Lord is the one that's speaking. And he says, and I'm going to send a messenger before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now we know who said it. The Lord of Hosts, that's a capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. You know, that's the translator's code to tell us, hey, that's the name of God right there. Be careful. It's the name Yahweh. And in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, we read, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the L O R D, all caps, who's coming. God is coming. The prophecy that Mark is referring to here is that God himself is coming and he has provided a forerunner, someone to go before him. Now the imagery of a forerunner may not be familiar to us, But in ancient times, before any king visited any part of his uh, realm, a messenger was sent before him to prepare the way. And that would include uh, preparing roads and fixing, you know, any problems in that regard, preparing people, calling nations to repentance. John the Baptist was preparing the way. And that's what he did. Dude was out there preaching in the wilderness. He was baptizing people and calling them to repentance, which, by the way, every prophet before him did the same. The message was the same. Turn back to the Lord. Turn back. And so, speaking of John the Baptist, what did he say about the Lord? Well, that's here in verse 4, conveniently located right after verse 3. <laughs> And so here is this this, uh, testimony of the prophets talking about a forerunner who would come and who is it that would follow? It would be God. And notice verse 4. John appeared. Take a look at his arrival in verses 4 and 5. Talking about John the Baptist. John appeared baptizing in a wilderness and proclaiming baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him by the river Jordan and confessing their sins. Like many other ancient peoples, Jewish people practiced ceremonial washings. And their only once for all ceremonial washing, however, was the immersion that non-Jews had to go through when they converted to Judaism. When we talk about baptism, the word baptism means to dip. Nothing to do with a little circle on your back pocket, my friends. What we're talking about here is full immersion under the water. Okay? That's what we mean by um, baptism. That's what the Bible means when it talks about baptism. It has nothing to do with sprinkling water at people or dribbling things on them. Immersion. Why? Why? What's the big deal? Water's water. How much do you need? You know, how big does the tub have to get? Well, the point, my friends, is the picture it gives. You see, the going under is awfully fun in a pool. But it all (laughs) detents. I see some heads shaking. No, it's not. (laughs) Because you understand you don't want to stay there so long. Yeah, why? What What leads to uh, staying underwater too long? Death. And that's what it represents. Death, burial, and resurrection to new life. Do you see the picture there? You ever been held underwater by your friends? You know, those guys that are like three years older than you who thought it was funny? You know, and you're like, I'm going to die, going to die. Mom's going to be so mad. <laughs> Terrifying, yeah. And so baptism represents this. And so here is John baptizing. Now, this baptism, of course, is not the same as what we practice, because it's an old covenant thing, you know, ceremonial washings. But, uh, but I'll tell you, if you were a Jew and you want, or you were a Gentile, you want to be a Jew, you got to get baptized. Represents change, transition. So to tell Jewish people they had to be baptized at some recent uh, and repent the same way that non-Jews did would would have been very offensive. And here is John the Baptist doing just that. You want to know who needs to be baptized? It's you. Me! How dare you! But here is John the prophet. The last of the prophets my friends preaching repentance and so we see his coming and his baptism take a look at his apparel look what he's wearing verse 6 now John was clothed with camel's hair let's just take a moment to feel the itchiness of such a thing (laughs) and he wore a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey if he ever got that stuff stuck in his teeth. <laughs> uh, you know what this is? This is a guy that's living out there, okay? It says, I haven't got very much. I'm eating what I can. But I'm doing the will of God and preaching his word. Yeah. He wore the garments of a prophet. And a particular prophet, a guy named Elijah. Yeah. And so he's dressed for it, he's living it out. But friends, where we really want to zoom in here is his preaching. What did he say? We're looking at witnesses who come forward and tell us, what is it that you know to be true about Jesus? And here, in verse 7, we read, And he preached, saying, After me comes one, comes he who is mightier than I, and the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You know what he said in John 1, verse 29? He said the next day, he saw Jesus coming. That's, that's John the Baptist. He saw Jesus coming. And he said, Behold! Now that word behold, it sounds like a Bible word, but what it means, friends, is this. You ought to be amazed by this. Consider how incredible this is. Because who comes after the forerunner? It's God. And he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's that. Takes away the sin again. Named Jesus. And this is He of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because He was before me. Now ironically, John was born before the incarnation and what he's talking about is eternality here because he was before me and I myself did not know him but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel and John bore witness there's the word put him on the stand swear to tell the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth so help you John, yeah, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him, that's Jesus. And I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And here it is, friends. Underline this one in your Bible. And I have seen and have borne witness that this, who? What is this? Jesus is the Son of God. The Christ of Christmas is God, my friends. He's not God Jr., He's not part God or mostly God. He is indeed God. When you think of Jesus, you must think rightly of him. And he is God. He is the God who came and took on flesh, became a man that he might dwell among men, that he might teach, that he might show his compassion and love. But ultimately, he came to die for you. Imagine God stepping down from his throne, seated at the right hand of the Father, to die in your place. Why? He's the Lord's salvation, that's why. He is our only hope, my friends. And so we have looked at the testimony of Mark in his gospel. We have seen what the prophets have said, including the very last prophet, John the Baptist. But when we get down here to verse 9, we see the testimony of the Father and the Holy Spirit. And what you're about to read is the whole trinity together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we're going to hear the Father speak about the identity of His Son. Notice in verse 9, the appearance of the three persons of the Trinity. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and He was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when He, that's Jesus, came up out of the water, immediately He saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on Him like a dove. So here is the Spirit of God visually presented here. And we have the appearance. Then we have the matter settled right here and right now. Verse 11 And a voice came from heaven and said, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. What did he say? The Father himself, God, voice from heaven, says, You are my son, the beloved one. Yeah. Apparently, it's final there. No need for any more argument. Look, when the Lord himself, when God the Father proclaims, This is my son, There is left nothing for us to explain. The truth is there. And yet the evidence from his life continues to testify. For example, we have the the testimony of a sinless life here in verse 13. The Spirit of God drove him out into the wilderness. The word drove doesn't mean he had a... You know, 67 Chevy Chevelle or anything. It means he was moved out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Imagine this, 40 days and the prince of darkness, the God of this world, nothing but moment after moment tempting him. How would you fare at that, my friends? How have you fared this past seven days? But notice what Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 says of him. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus. Here it is, the Son of God, (laughs) let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Sinless Son of God, the sinless Son of God. The testimony of his sinless life he lived I would say with the same temptations oh no far worse than you have ever experienced and yet he remained sinless and there is the testimony of his work and verse 14 we see him calling disciples now after John was arrested Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying And going on a little farther he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother who were in a boat mending nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching and they were astonished by his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority, not like the scribes. See, the scribes would quote one guy after another. You know, Jameson and Jonathan and this guy said and that guy said, Jesus just simply said, this is the way it is. Authority, my friends. His demonstration of great power here in verse 23 I mean, here in 23 to 29, we see him casting out demons. I mean, that's some serious power right there. And immediately there was in this synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Even the demons knew who he was, my friends. Now Jesus wasn't fond of the sponsorship so he rebuked him saying be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves what is this a new teaching? With authority he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him? And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding regions of Galilee. And immediately, if you're counting immediately's here, they show up 40 times in Mark's gospel. The Greek word is Uthus. Mark's book is uh, just a, a book of action. Immediately they went, immediately they did this, and immediately from one thing to another. He left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon Andrew with James and John. So he's casting out unclean spirits. He's healing the sick. Look at here in verse 30. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately, there it is, told you. (laughs) They told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her. And she began to serve them. And then we have this uh, summary statement here in verse 32. And that evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, I, Let us go on to the next towns, that I might preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he gets to the next town here in verse 39. And he heals a man with leprosy. And it just continues. The testimony of Jesus works. Calling out disciples. Demonstrating great power. Through casting out demons. And healing the sick. Simply with a touch. Credentials they are my friends. You want to know who he is? Take a look at what he does. Hear what he says and how he says it. But finally, we come to the end of Mark's gospel. and We've covered a lot of ground here, haven't we? You see, in, in Mark chapter 15, Jesus is being crucified. Why? Because he was a criminal? No. Like every prophet before him, Jesus had said, "Tell me what prophet you did not persecute." And the light shining, my friends, people close their eyes. And here is this testimony before you—one, two chapters out of the Gospel of Mark—and you know exactly who Jesus is. The question is, how ought you to respond? So here, Jesus is being crucified, and there is this centurion who is a witness to this event. In verse 33, darkness came over the land. Darkness over all the whole land until the ninth hour, we read. In verse 34 of Mark 15, Jesus cries out to the Father, And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, My God, why have you forsaken Me? And do you know why God him? You. He died for you, my friends. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whosoever believes in Him will would not perish, but have everlasting life. Verse 37, And Jesus uttered a loud cry, and breathed his last. And at that very moment, and we're going to talk about this more, come Resurrection Sunday, my friends. But the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Why is that stated? Friends, it wasn't an accident. At that very moment, access to God was wide open because Christ died to open the door, to kick open the doors to bring you to God. And this centurion who stood there watching it all, verse 39, we read, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw in this way that he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. The evidence is everywhere, my friends. It is everywhere. And so what have we learned here this morning? It is this, that whenever you, when you examine the evidence, it is clear that Jesus indeed is God. And because that's true, you ought to be worshiping him. Worship looks a lot like service and celebration mixed up all into one bucket. It says, because I love him, because of who he is, I will rejoice. And I will do as he calls me to do. That's called obedience. So if he is God, and he is, then worship him. If he is God, and you know he is, you ought to obey him. And this is that moment where perhaps the Spirit of God is highlighting. And you know what he's highlighting right now in your own heart. And it's time to confess it to him. And to walk away from that sin. Obey Him. And if He is God, and He is, you ought to be serving Him. Step out of your comfort zone and do what it is He's called you to do, to serve the people of God. And finally, honor Him. And you know what the best way to honor Him is? You knew this was coming. You ought to tell somebody about Him. Tell Him what He did. Tell him why he came. Tell him that Christ died for our sins and he rose from the dead, that we could be saved by faith, that we could receive a new life and a new hope and a new future because he is a God of love and a God of grace. Yeah, I think we'd live a little differently if we reminded ourselves every now and again who it is we serve. Not the nice guy in the clouds, my friend, he's God.